Chapter 2 A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit www.librivox.org. A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder by James DeMille. Chapter 2 Adrift in the Antarctic Ocean. My name is Adam Moore. I am the son of Henry Moore, apothecary, Keswick, Cumberland. I was mate of the ship Trevelyan, Bennett, master, which was chartered by the British government to convey convicts to Van Diemen's Land. This was in 1843. We made our voyage without any casualty, landed our convicts in Hobart Town, and then set forth on our return home. It was the 17th of December when we left. From the first, adverse winds prevailed, and in order to make any progress, we were obliged to keep well to the south. At length, on the 6th of January, we sighted Desolation Island. We found it, indeed, a desolate spot. In its vicinity, we saw a multitude of smaller islands, perhaps a thousand in number, which made navigation difficult and forced us to hurry away as fast as possible. But the aspect of this dreary spot was of itself enough to repel us. There were no trees, and the multitude of islands seemed like moss-covered rocks, while the temperature, though in the middle of the Antarctic summer, was from 38 to 58 degrees Fahrenheit. In order to get rid of these dangerous islands, we stood south and west and at length found ourselves in south latitude 65 degrees, longitude 60 degrees east. We were fortunate enough not to find any ice, although we were within 1,500 miles of the South Pole and far within that impenetrable icy barrier which, in 1773, had arrested the progress of Captain Cook. Here the wind failed us and we lay becalmed and drifting, the sea was open all around us, except to the southeast, where there was a low line along the horizon, terminating in a lofty promontory, but though it looked like land, we took it for ice. All around us, whales and grampuses were gamboling and spouting in vast numbers. The weather was remarkably fine and clear. For two or three days the calm continued, and we drifted along helplessly, until at length we found ourselves within a few miles of the promontory above mentioned. It looked like land, and seemed to be a rocky island rising from the depths of the sea. It was, however, all covered with ice and snow, and from this there extended eastward, as far as the eye could reach, an interminable line of ice, but toward the southwest the sea seemed open to navigation." The promontory was very singular in shape, rising up to a peak which was at least a thousand feet in height and forming a striking object easily discovered and readily identified by any future explorer. We named it after our ship Trevelyan Peak and then felt anxious to lose sight of it forever. But the calm continued and at length we drifted in close enough to see immense flocks of seals dotting the ice at the foot of the peak. Upon this I proposed to Agnew, the second mate, that we should go ashore, shoot some seals, and bring them back. This was partly for the excitement of the hunt, and partly for the honor of landing in a place never before trodden by the foot of man. Captain Bennett made some objections, but he was old and cautious, and we were young and adventuresome, so we laughed away his scruples and set forth. 
we did not take any of the crew, owing to the captain's objections. He said that if we chose to throw away our own lives, he could not help it, but that he would positively refuse to allow a single man to go with us. We thought this refusal an excess of caution amounting to positive cowardice, but we were unable to change his mind. The distance was not great, the adventure was attractive, and so the captain's gig was lowered, and in this Agnew and I rowed ashore. We took with us a double-barreled rifle apiece and also a pistol. Agnew took a glass. We rode for about three miles and reached the edge of the ice which extended far out from the promontory. Here we landed and secured the boat by means of a small grappling iron which we thrust into the ice. We then walked toward the promontory for about a mile, and here we found a multitude of seals. These animals were so fearless that they made not the slightest movement as we came up, but stared at us in an indifferent way. We killed two or three, and then debated whether to go to the promontory or not. Agnew was eager to go so as to touch the actual rock, but I was satisfied with what we had done and was now desirous of returning. In the midst of this I felt a flake of snow on my cheek. I started and looked up. To my great surprise, I saw that the sky had changed since I had last noticed it. When we left the ship it was clear and blue, but now it was overspread with dark, leaden-colored clouds, and the snowflakes that had fallen were of ominous of evil. A snowstorm here, in the vicinity of the ice, was too serious a thing to be disregarded. But one course now remained, and that was an immediate return to the ship. Each of us seized a seal and dragged it after us to the boat. We reached it and flung them in. Just at that moment, a gun sounded over the water. It was from the ship, the signal of alarm, the summons from our captain to return. We saw now that she had been drifting since we left her, and had moved southwest several miles. The row back promised to be far harder than the pull ashore, and what was worse, the wind was coming up, the sea was rising, and the snow was thickening. Neither of us said a word. We saw that our situation was very serious and that we had been very foolhardy, but the words were useless now. The only thing to be done was to pull for the ship with all our strength, and that is what we did. So we pushed off and rowed as we had never rowed before. Our progress was difficult. The sea grew steadily rougher, the wind increased, the snow thickened, and worst of all, the day was drawing to a close. We had miscalculated both as to distance and time. Even if it had continued calm, we should have had to row back in the dark. But now the sun was setting, and with the darkness we had to encounter the gathering storm and the blinding snow. We rowed in silence. At every stroke, our situation grew more serious. The wind was from the south, and therefore favored us to some extent, and also made less of a sea than would have been produced by a wind from any other quarter. But then the south wind brought dangers of its own, which we were soon to feel new dangers, and worse ones. For this south wind drove the ship farther from us, and at the same time broke up the vast fields of ice and impelled the fractured masses northward. But this was a danger we did not know just then. At that time we were rowing for the ship, and amid the darkness and the blinding snow and the dashing waves we heard from time to time the report of the signal guns fired from the ship to guide us back. These were our only guide, for the darkness and the snow had drawn the ship from our sight, and we had to be guided by our hearing only. We were rowing for our lives, and we knew it, but every moment our situation grew more desperate. Each new report of the guns seemed to sound farther away. 
we always seemed to be rowing in the wrong direction. At each report, we had to shift the boat's course somewhat and pull toward the last point from which the gun seemed to sound. With all this, the wind was increasing rapidly to a gale. The sea was rising and breaking over the boat. The snow was blinding us with its ever-thickening sleet. The darkness deepened, and at length had grown so intense that nothing whatever could be seen, neither sea nor sky, not even the boat itself. Yet we dared not stop. We had to row. Our lives depended on our efforts. We had to row, guided by the sound of the ship's guns, which the ever-varying wind incessantly changed till our minds grew all confused and we rowed blindly and mechanically. So we labored for hours at the oars, and the storm continually increased and the sea continually rose while the snow fell thicker and the darkness grew intenser. The reports of the gun now grew fainter. What was worse, they were heard at longer intervals, and this showed us that Captain Bennett was losing heart, that he was giving us up, that he despaired of finding us, and was now firing only an occasional gun out of a mournful sense of duty. This thought reduced us to despair. It seemed as if all our efforts had only served to take us farther away from the ship and deprived us of all motive for rowing any harder than was barely necessary to keep the boat steady. After a time, Agnew dropped his oar and began to bail out the boat a work which was needed, for in spite of our care she had shipped many seas and was one-third full of water. He worked away at this while I managed the boat, and then we took turns at bailing. In this way we passed the dreary night. Morning came at last. The wind was not so violent, but the snow was so thick that we could only see for a little distance around us. The ship was nowhere visible, nor were there any signs of her. The last gun had been fired during the night. All that we could see was the outline of a gaunt iceberg, an ominous spectacle. Not knowing what else to do, we rode on as before, keeping in what seemed to be our best course, though this was merely conjecture, and we knew all the time that we might be going wrong. There was no compass in the boat, nor could we tell the sun's position through the thick snow. We rode with the wind, thinking that it was blowing toward the north and would carry us in that direction. We still hoped to come within sound of the ship's gun, and kept straining our ears incessantly to hear the wished-for report. But no such sound ever came again, and we heard nothing except the plash of the waves and the crash of breaking ice. Thus all that day we rode along, resting at intervals when exhausted, and then resuming our labors until at length night came, and again to the snow and ice and waves was added the horror of great darkness." we passed that night in deep misery. We had eaten nothing since we left the ship, but though exhausted by long fasting and severe labor, the despair of our hearts took away all desire for food. We were worn out with hard work, yet the cold was too great to allow us to take rest, and we were compelled to row so as to keep ourselves from perishing. But fatigue and drowsiness overcame us, and we often sank into sleep even while rowing, and then, after a brief slumber, we would awaken with benumbed limbs to wrestle again with the oars. In this way we passed that night. Another morning came, and we found to our great joy that the snow had ceased. We looked eagerly around to see if there were any signs of the ship. Nothing could be seen of her. Far away on one side rose a peak, which looked like the place where we had landed. Judging from the wind, which we still supposed to be southerly, the peak lay toward the northeast, in which case we had been carried steadily, in spite of all our efforts, toward the south. 
About a mile on one side of us the ice began and extended far away, while on the other side, at the distance of some ten miles, there was another line of ice. We seemed to have been carried in a southwesterly direction along a broad strait that ran into the vast ice fields. This discovery showed how utterly useless our labors had been, for in spite of all, even with the wind in our favor, we had been drawn steadily in the opposite direction. It was evident that there was some current here, stronger than all our strength, which had brought us to this place. We now determined to land on the ice and try to cook a portion of our seals. On approaching it, we noticed that there was a current which tended to draw us past the ice in what I supposed to be a southwesterly direction. This confirmed my worst fears. But now the labor of landing and building a fire on the ice served to interest us for a time and divert our thoughts. We brushed away the snow and then broke up a box which was in the boat and also the stern seats. This we used very sparingly, reserving the rest for another occasion. Then we cut portions from one of the seals and laid them in thin strips on the flames. The cooking was but slight, for the meat was merely singed, but we were ravenous, and the contact of the fire was enough to give it an attractive flavor. With this food we were greatly refreshed, and as for drink, we had all around us an endless extent of ice and snow. Then, taking our precious fragments of cooked meat, we returned to the boat and put off. We could scarcely tell what to do next, and while debating on this point, we fell asleep. We slept far into the night, and then awoke benumbed with cold, then took to the oars till we were weary, then fell asleep again to be awakened by the cold, and again to pull at the oars. So the night passed, and another day came. The snow still held off, but the sky was overcast with dark, leaden-colored clouds, and looked threatening. Ice was all around us as before, and the open water had diminished now from ten miles to five miles of width. The ice on one side was low, but on the opposite side it arose to the height of one hundred feet. We saw here, as we watched the shore, that the current which had already borne us thus far was now stronger than ever, and was carrying us along at a rate which made all efforts of ours against it utterly useless. And now a debate arose between us as to the direction of the current. Agnew suddenly declared his belief that it was running north, while I was firm in the conviction that it ran south. "'There's no use rowing any more,' said Agnew. "'If it runs south, we can't resist it. It's too strong. "'But I always like to look on the bright side, and so I believe it runs north. "'In that case, there is no use rowing, for it would carry us along fast enough. "'Then I proposed that we should go ashore on the ice. "'To this Agnew objected, but afterward consented at my earnest request. "'So we tried to get ashore, but this time found it impossible.' for the ice consisted of a vast sheet of floating lumps, which looked like the ruins of bergs that had been broken up in some storm. After this I had nothing to say, nor was there anything left for us but to drift wherever the current might carry us. So we drifted for some days, Agnew all the time maintaining that we were going north, while I was sure that we were going south. The sky remained cloudy as ever, the wind varied incessantly, and there was nothing by which we could conjecture the points of the compass. We lived on our seal, and for drink we chewed ice and snow. One thing was certain, the climate was no colder. Agnew laid great stress on this. You see, he said, we must be going north. If we were going south, we should be frozen stiff by this time. Yes, but if we were going north, said I, we ought to find it growing warmer. 
No, said he, not with all this ice around us. It's the ice that keeps the temperature in this cold state. Argument could do no good, so we each remain true to our belief, his leading him to hope and mine dragging me down to despair. At length we finished the last fragment of the seal that we had cooked, and finding ourselves near some firm ice, we went ashore and cooked all that was left, using the remainder of our wood for fuel, and all that we dared to remove from the boat. Re-embarking with this, we drifted on as before. Several more days passed. At last, one night, I was roused by Agnew. He pointed far away to the distant horizon, where I saw a deep red glow as of fire. We were both filled with wonder at the sight, and were utterly unable to account for it. We knew that it could not be caused by the sun or the moon, for it was midnight, and the cause lay on the earth and not in the skies. It was a deep, lurid glow extending along the horizon, and seemed to be caused by some vast conflagration. End of chapter 2